Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 163 for September 25th, 2008. DNS Security. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by GoToMeeting. For a month of unlimited online meetings absolutely free, go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, a chance to talk about the world of security as it applies to technology. Steve Gibson is here. He's the guy at GRC.com, Gibson Research Corporation. They I do. Guess it's, really, it's really not our listeners' chance to talk about it. It's, it's, our, it's chance our chance to talk, to talk to you. about it, their chance to listen. So, yeah. There he is, Steve Gibson, always precise. <laughs> you can tell he's an engineer. Leo, I, li- I listen to you. That's the thing. He's, well, that's true, too. Nobody else listens to me. I pay attention. And, uh, but, but, yeah, I think that's, the, that's actually your, your chief uh, 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 virtue and charm is that, like most engineers, you're, you're very precise about your choice of words, and you try very hard to accurately represent the facts. When you program in assembly language, you have no choice. It's, it's that or nothing. No root, comma, <laughs> dot, dot, semicolon, so forth. So a lot to talk about today. We uh, we do have some tech uh, security news. We have uh, some corrections to make. We're going to talk about Chrome because you've done now your analysis of Chrome. We yep. also, uh, what, what we're going to talk about DNS security, you said. Yeah, um, I, I had, had promised to talk about it um, weeks ago when we were talking about the whole DNS spoofing problem. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did some sort of catching up and I discovered that there's more, it, there's more interesting things happening on the political side than really on the technical side. So I want to sort of talk mm-hmm. about sort of the notion of, of, of the technology a little bit about DNS security, but what it really means to have secure DNS because it enables all kinds of other stuff that would be really good to have, but there's also some problems hmm. um, because it turns out only one person can own it, and uh, we got a big complex globe. <laughs> yes. And you could uh, imagine that would be a problem. It's not just the U.S. that gets to decide this stuff either. Well, but as, well, as I'll explain, there can only be one owner. And oh. no one no one really is happy with the U.S. being that person. Oh, I can't wait to talk about this. This yeah. will be very interesting. So DNS security, our main topic today. Yep. Before we get into the security news of the week, let me um, talk a little bit about Astaro. They have been with us for over two years. Uh, I think really this is a company that uh, by now I think the name Astaro should be synonymous in your mind with security. They make the Astaro Internet Gateway, the Astaro uh, a security gateway as well. This is a the security gateway is is really a neat box. It's a, what they call a UTM, Unified Threat Management, kind of about the size of a router. Great for your small or medium business network that needs superior protection. And nowadays, that's more than just intrusion and hackers. Of course, it's got that state of the art firewall and intrusion detection, but also from spam 
It's got great anti-spam filters, also from viruses. Three different antiviruses in Astaro Security. Uh, and, and they're updated automatically with the Astaro Up-to-Date program. You get complete VPN, even VPN over SSL, which is, of course, the easiest for your users to implement. The boss isn't going to come to you saying, I can't get the VPN working. Also, you'll like this. The boss might even like this in this day and age. Built-in encryption. Transparent to the users. Both encryption and digital signing using S-MIME and Open Open, uh, PGP standards. It all happens through a central email encryptor inside the Astaro gateway. Inbound email automatically decrypted. And it's verified and forwarded through virus and content scanners before users open it. You are so protected. You are so safe and secure. I want you to call Astaro, especially if you're using a Cisco Pix right now. And the Pix is coming to the end of its life. Astaro's got a special deal for Cisco Pix users who want to upgrade to the Astaro Security Gateway. Call 877-427-8276. That's 877, the number 4, AST. A-R-O, and find out more. You can even get a demo, free demo in your business. And if you're a non-commercial user, check out the downloads at astaro.com slash security now. There's even a VMware appliance. You could try it in your home on your own box. Astaro, that name synonymous with security. 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. We thank them so much for their support. Security now. So what's in the news? Secure. I noticed I just got a Windows update all of a sudden. Is this the second Tuesday of the month? No. Mm, no. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't check mine yeah. either, nor have I seen anything written up recently. Um, that's interesting, too, because there have been some complaints recently raised about Apple's non-synchronous pushing out of updates. Um, it's up, you know, a- Apple is releasing updates whenever they feel like well, it. Well, so did Microsoft for the longest time until there were so many updates they couldn't do it that way anymore. Well, actually, it was, it was the corporate the, the the corporate guys who said, look, you're killing um, us here. We can't have yeah. these kinds of interruptions on an ad hoc basis. Right. We just can't have them appearing at the door and needing to, to stop everything and figure out what they mean and what and how important they are. So it was really, I mean, you know, end users don't care, but it was a corporate well, IT guys. They care a little bit if they happen every day. But hackers don't wait either. I mean, that's the problem. They don't wait till every 30 days to release release attacks. It is true that to the degree that, that Apple is pushing them out the moment they're ready, that as we know, that that reduces the size of the of the window of opportunity for exploit. So on the on the pro asynchronous update um, pushing side, that is the Apple approach. You could say, well, yes, but it's minimizing the opportunity for exploitation. On the on the con side, though, I mean, now we're seeing as Apple is trying to get themselves more into a, a corporate environment than before and as apple's market share is increasing this is becoming a problem and uh, corporate it people are pushing back on apple saying look uh look what microsoft does we like that we'd we'd like it if you did that too so yeah yeah but but we have been seeing microsoft falling out of this second tuesday of the month routine there have been like little like you know patchy patches coming out where they made a mistake apparently with their initial update and then made a fix and then put it out again so you know i've been seeing the same sort of thing you have leo <sighs> i did i did want to i wanted to say at the top of the show that um we've been getting a bunch of people trying to submit 
stuff to me, to security now, who've been sending email to GRC. Well, that works, but we've got a place for it to go. And I realized as I've been seeing this, this swell of people saying, how, you know, how do I send something to you guys? And in fact, Leo, you have forwarded things to me that people have tried mm-hmm, to send. Mm-hmm. It's that we haven't been, I haven't been saying grc.com slash feedback. Right. So I wanted to make sure that everyone knew that to, to submit things to security now that sort of go into that bin, grc.com slash feedback. And that stuff, it's a web form that they, you can drop your text into if you've written it ahead of time. Um, it's, it's as anonymous as you want it to be. I, I don't, you know, it, we, I like to have names and locations so that we can sort of give a sense when you're reading the, the questions on our Q&A episodes, where people are, you know, who, who and where. It sort of makes it more personal and fun. Um, these are, you know, real people, not disembodied text streams. Right. Um, but I just wanted to make sure everyone knew grc.com slash feedback was the way to submit things to us. Right. Um, last week, we, in, in one of our, in our last week's Q&A, um, I read a question uh, from someone that caused me to sort of raise some alarm about the uninstall behavior of Google's Chrome browser. Um, the first time I, it's funny, too, because I even mentioned how skeptical I was of this initially. But when several people talked about it being the case, I then took a look at it myself. And the issue was that upon removing the Chrome browser, there was stuff apparently deliberately left behind, namely all of the Google update infrastructure, which Chrome brings along with it, um, which is used for maintaining the currency of any of Google's code base, whether it's their their desktop search or their uh, web browser toolbar or the Chrome browser. And in this instance, I had set up a clean virtual machine that had never seen any Google code at all, installed Chrome, removed Chrome, and sure enough, there was all this stuff left behind. Uh, there was uh, essentially uh, Google Update.exe was still invoking itself in the in in um, the run key of the registry so that it would always arrange to be running all of the time and that continued for hours after chrome had been removed uh, so I, I verified that behavior on the show last week and i said you know, i'll be looking into it more deeply but this looked like a problem not long afterwards that that VMware session was still open on one of my monitors on the side, and I happened to glance over, and it was all gone. I mean, completely, perfectly, beautifully removed from the system. So it's like, okay, wait a minute. Did I push something, or did I do something? So I immediately retraced my steps, recreated the experiment, and sure enough, removing Chrome, this stuff was left there. Um I restarted the system, the virtual machine, a few times. I watched uh, with a packet capture, and I saw Chrome phoning home to the mothership and exchanging, you know, uh, you, through an XML dialog, exchanging a bunch of gobbledygook, you know. You can't uh, tell what it's saying, can you? I mean, it's, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it? It's not obvious what they're saying. You can't say. Right. It's oh. not. It's not English. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not English. Any English that we know. And um, so, so 
finally, so I immediately sent email to you guys uh, there saying, whoa, you know, we need to we need to head off the the alarm bells from last week because I don't understand exactly what's going on yet, but it's it looks like it's removing itself for some mysterious reason, maybe on some criteria based on its conversation with Google or I don't know what. So the the most that's the interesting thing you can't tell. It's like not a certain number of reboots or something. It's just yes, of, it's not. Huh. Um, it and I, then I thought, okay, well, and my, as I was about to say, my most my most telling experiment was that I installed Chrome, and then I shut down that virtual machine's connection to the internet, so that Chrome ne- neither Chrome nor Google Update could phone home hmm. in any way. Okay. Then I removed Chrome, and instead of getting the the pop-up screen, oh, ow, please tell us why you are leaving us. <laughs> right. You know, I just got, I could not display this web page. I said, okay, good. And now neither could Google update phone home. Right. I just wanted to see whether this, whether, whether it was disappearing on a schedule, if it was disappearing when it had permission to leave, that is, and specifically, if it had been abandoned, if it was all, left behind on your machine, was there any scenario that would keep it from removing itself well for one thing if you if you kept it from running then it wouldn't remove itself although it has many ways of running because it does install plugins into all the browsers it can find to to keep its its hooks into your system but if you just do the normal thing that is you uninstall chrome and literally wait a while even with no connection to the internet, it, it it tries to phone home. It can't resolve the the um, domain name that, that Google is using for that purpose. So after a few hours, it goes away. It just cleans itself up and says, "Okay, I guess there's nobody here who needs me or wants me anymore." So I'm leaving, and huh. it does. Huh. Now I've got to say I have no problem with that. It'd be a little nicer if it noticed that it was the last piece of google code in the system and went away i don't know why it couldn't do that but i would imagine maybe the google guys have some reason or maybe they're thinking you're going to reinstall afterwards they don't mm. want to yeah they want to give you a lose. chance yeah they yeah. want to give you a chance to change yeah. your mind yeah. i don't know what they're what, what they're thinking or why or maybe they want some final chance to do some final you know after removal Reporting yeah, there may be to- some reboots, too, that need to go on. I mean, it's odd that it wouldn't be. I could see how it'd be after one reboot, it might go away. I tried multiple one, once, multiple times, none. It just <laughs> seems to be based on time. And not even huh. seeming, I didn't even say, I didn't watch the time, because normally I would look up and it had taken some opportunity to, to disappear between then and the time I had looked before. So it, it's hard hard to keep track of it. Who knows? But But the point is, it is not the case, as and this answers the question from last week, not the case that Google leaves stuff forever in your system. And we now, should reiterate, I said this, uh, What what I should explain what happened. So, because uh, those, those of you who saw it live saw us go on and on and on about this. And then before we put out the podcast, Steve emailed me back with saying, wait a minute, hold on, it did seem to uninstall itself. Let's do some research and come back next week. So I essentially cut it out. I didn't want to scare people without having the facts in front of us. So I cut out most of that discussion. Um, And I did say this, but I want to reiterate this, that the Chrome folder that our our correspondent saw 
and this is confusing, is not Google's Chrome, but f- what it's what Firefox calls its UI. So that it's a bunch of jar files for the Firefox UI. So yes, deleting that Chrome folder does break Firefox. But but you but you do stand by the points that Firefox or uh, Chrome does install something into a, a browser helper object into Internet Explorer. It does install and, a plugin into Firefox, right? Uh, and it does install a Google updater. It does phone home with stuff we don't know what it's saying. Uh, the only thing we correct is, and uh, and I, I think that because I cut that part out, I don't think it's a, a major correction. But the only thing that we correct is that the uh, the updater does uninstall itself after time. It leaves itself on there initially, but after some unknown amount of time, it uninstalls itself. Yes, and um, I did, and maybe this was also something that was removed from the podcast. I, I did listen to to what you had edited, Leo, and it sounded much better to me. Of course, it, it sounded. Well, you know, yeah, and, like, and, and I, in, in, in the case of, I, I, I absolutely want complete transparency here. Um, so we talked about it uh, after the video, so that people understood who would watch the video. I hope people stayed tuned for it. Um, and then uh, I just, you know, in this case, I feel like it's 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 as if a newspaper had an article. Something in the article didn't fact check out, took it out before publishing it. And I feel like that's what we did. But because we broadcast live, people saw the sausage being made. So I just want to make it very clear exactly what happened so that you guys understand. And I just didn't feel like we should publish it with something that we didn't understand yet. And now we're oh, coming I, back I, and explaining Absolutely. And, and the fact that we have a, you know, the the listener base of the podcast is substantially larger than the viewer base. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, we did also mention, or there there were some, uh, I agreed certainly um, in talking to you that I would take a look at Apple too because there were some people in the in the chat room during the podcast that were upset saying, well, man, you know, Apple does the same thing. Which is well, no okay, excuse, obviously. It's, exactly. I mean, right. I feel that very strong. It's like, I don't care what Apple does. <laughs> I mean, you know, we were, we'll we're call them on that as well. <laughs> it doesn't make um, it okay. I did take a look, though, through a, a Safari install and remove, and and Apple operates differently. I actually like the way Apple's update functions more than than Google's. Apple update functions by by um, registering a task scheduler job to run. In my case, late Saturday night once a week. Hmm. So. Only so nothing is running in the system all the time, which I like a lot more than Google updates sitting there, right. you know, as a process. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I try many, to avoid too, too many programs do this and, it's, and it slows your system down eventually because you have all these processes sitting there. Yes. And, and essentially everyone, everyone seems to think that they own, right. you know, your system and have a right to, to, to come in and stomp around on it, which is, you know, really annoying for someone who's trying for any, for any users who are security conscious and want to have some some sense for what all this gobbledygook is that's running in their system it slows your boot it's it, you know it's burning up some ram resources it, it impacts reliability and it makes it very difficult to detect spyware because you see all these processes running and you don't know what belongs to what yes in in google updates uh, to to google updates credit i will say that it is not big you know if it were hundreds well not hundreds of megabytes well all of that that too but i mean if it were really big and running all the time that would be a problem but in my case it was about 183k which is that's tiny you know it's yeah compared to the amount of ram we have these days it's tiny it generally seems to be the case on os 10 and i think it's true on linux that programs the, the, the 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 kind of default way of doing this is that chrome would check on start it wouldn't keep something running all the time 
But when the application runs, it would check for updates and then download updates. And most Apple applications work that way. They download updates only when they're run. They don't stick stuff in the background. And I think that's true on Linux as well. It's just kind of, kind of not done. Well, and, and so we've heard, and this may just be anecdotal or initial industry stuff. Um, I, I remember hearing that, that Google was looking often to, to che- like Google Update was checking hourly to see if there was anything new. Now, in their and, defense, what they're checking for, they say, is new phishing pages, new security. They're, they're looking to update their phishing uh, thing. And I think Internet Explorer 7 does something similar, doesn't it? Uh, I have not looked closely. I think it does update its database of malware sites. And God knows there's new ones all the time. So maybe you could make the justification. It seems to me, though, it should be doing that when it's running. I mean, if you only run Chrome once a month to run Gmail or something, why why do you want something running in the background every hour updating Chrome? Right. And again, this could also be, in my opinion, covered by the fact that they're in beta mode, that this is a beta. Lord knows how many years it's right. going to be right. labeled beta, given Google's reputation for, for – or penchant for leaving things in beta <laughs> forever. Um, but anyway, uh, I did want to mention that what Apple does is it installs the, the Apple update, which it does not remove when you remove Safari. It does, however, leave it in your ad remove programs listing. So if you install Safari and remove Safari, Safari, the act of installing Safari does bring Apple Update along for the ride, right. but does not take it out. Now, again, oh. I don't know if it, if I don't know if next Saturday night when it when Apple Update runs, if it would notice that Safari had left and then it would remove itself. I didn't check that, um, but I did see that there were two separate entries in the in Windows Add Remove Programs files listing. One for Safari and a, and a separate one for Apple Update, and you know you just click on that and remove it, and it goes away. So um, you know they are they're 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 operating very differently. I like the idea that Apple Update's uh, independent updater is not running all the time, and it runs weekly, which you know seems fine to me. And as you said, Leo, certainly when you run Safari, Safari can check to see if there's anything that's a good time to do it yeah yeah maybe they do it because they want to speed up boot you know browsers you want to look how fast chrome pops up and is ready to go and that's probably why they don't want to do that on startup but that's the price you pay is that your machine is always doing it every hour whether whether you want it to uh, or not so on on the balance now knowing this what you know about uh, chrome uh, are you still concerned about uh, its uh, its security and uh, about whether people should install it Oh yeah, um, I'm not at all concerned about the the Google update behavior. I think that's entirely acceptable, especially as a beta. If it had left this stuff in the system forever, then even as a beta, I would feel that's unacceptable. But this is just fine the way it is now. However, I still feel the same way about the browser being too feature lean. Right. It's it's unacceptable for it to to by default to to offer to save website passwords and provide no facility for the owner of the system to protect those from prying eyes. That's a real problem. I mean, that's just nuts. Yeah. Um, And frankly, I I know that Google wants us to be a platform for running Java, 
JavaScript applications and, you know, sort of the web 2.0 model of things, the, 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 the browser as the application platform. But, but it is, I mean, all the vulnerabilities we run across today are about, are, are scripting driven. They are, they're enabled by scripting, by going to malicious sites that use scripting in order to cause something bad to happen in your system. I, okay, I said all. I shouldn't have said all because there, for example, we just had w- image-based vulnerabilities with GDI Plus in Windows in Microsoft's last update. So there was a non-scripting vulnerability where just showing an image would cause could cause a remote code execution exploit. So it's not the case that absolutely all, but 99.9% of what we've talked about in the last year have been script-driven exploits. So the idea that that there's no way to to disable JavaScript at all, let alone site-specific disabling, which 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 um, IE offers natively, and which the NoScript plugin to Firefox allows. I just the idea that it doesn't have it, it just it can't compete in right. in the browser world. Right. And, and some people have said, well, it's not really a browser. It's an application platform. It's like, well, yes, it's a browser. I mean, <laughs> of course it's a browser. Well, when it comes to security, if you're using it uh, on the Internet, I, I mean, I guess if you stuck with Google applications only, these would be less important. Of course, it'd have yes. your password, your Gmail password visible. I don't know if you really want that. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, you talked about wanting to keep it around to as a better platform for running right. Google Mail, right. For, right. for running Gmail, which I think makes absolute sense. I just think it's it's not ready yet as, you know, to be someone's only browser. No, 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 no. And uh, in my real big news, uh, well, for me, I've switched to Firefox, Leo. What? <laughs> and why, Mr. Steve uh, Gibson? Because I've had this battle with you for now... Nigh on four years. <laughs> as long as we've known each other. You, you've always yeah. been an IE user. Now, you, to, to your credit, I've always used you as an example of how you can use IE safely. Uh, and, right. And you do that. But uh, why uh, did you switch? Um, I just think that Firefox has become mature enough. And frankly, there is a, a fabulous ecosystem oh, yeah. Of, oh, yeah. of plugins that surround it. Um, so I've, I've spent some time in the last week... I just I just made the decision. I, I liked the way it looked Fire, with Firefox three. Mm-hmm. I liked the, the security improvements in, that they went in going from 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 two from two to three. Firefox is one of the only browsers. I can't remember if it's the only. We'll be talking about uh, privacy related issues of browsers before long, but it's it's at the top of the pile of of privacy of privacy enforcement. Um, it really does a good job. Well, and, except it's third party. You think it's third party cookie support is now acceptable? Well, it, or blocking. It, I wish it were. I wish it were. They. I wish third party cookies were disabled by default. Right. But it, it. They're not. That's my only complaint because it does block. It. It. It blocks outbound cookies, which is outbound third party cookies, which you want not blocking inbound third-party cookies, which unfortunately the WebKit-derived browsers, um, specifically Safari and Chrome, um, oh, and IE, which is not WebKit-derived, but IE also, they block incoming but not outgoing, which hmm. is wrong, the wrong approach to, to blocking and, and filtering cookies. So, and, and, but more, more than that, if you add a couple simple plugins, 
like NoScript that and, and people are have been jumping up and down about it. And I'm, I mean, I oh, was hearing great. so much yeah. so much yeah. about it. I thought, okay, I got to find out what it, this is. You know, time to give up on IE Gibson and <laughs> and switch. And I have switched. Um, I, and and finally, it took after a couple of days. I realized when I was clicking on links, I was still getting an IE instance. And finally, I said, okay, time to switch over to Firefox full time. I mean, wow. so Windows Update will still run IE in order because you know it'll only run in in IE which is just fine. I'm doing all my surfing on on Firefox 3 and I'm very happy and and using NoScript with scripting def- disabled by default and then you selectively enable it for those sites that need it. I mean that's that's the way to surf. And I should point out that Steve is the opposite of an early adopter but that's uh, I think anybody who is really concerned about security that's the way it should be. I mean you you only recently moved off of uh, Windows 2000 to Windows XP. Yeah. And Vista, well, Vista's way off in the future. <laughs> Vista's maybe never. <laughs> um, I wanted to mention, since we had talked about the Large Hadron Collider recently. Oh, that bad news there, huh? It shut down. Sad. Yep, there was a, I loved it too, because what it literally had was a coolant leak. And I thought, this is the Enterprise. We were talking about how it's like a starship when you look at the photos of this thing. And, you know, of course, they were always having coolant leaks. You can't, oh, that's bad on, on, on a starship. And it turns out it's just as bad on a, on a superconducting magnet. When, when, when you get a coolant leak on a superconducting magnet, all kinds of things melt and you get helium. I think it's helium that was leaking into the internal chambers. Anyway, they, they are now shut down until spring uh. because the electricity costs so much and the rate, the cost of electricity goes up in the winter that they are they're 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 now shut down until next spring when when they're able to afford to well they have to make repairs and then uh, and afford to fire this puppy back up again so uh, not, um, i did also want to mention in my little own errata section that uh i was really delighted when i happened to go back to um the kindles online shopping area looking at newspapers and the Financial Times is now available. You read the Financial Times? It is, in my opinion, the best of the financial-oriented wow. newspapers. I've been reading the Wall Street Journal a lot, and then I added the the New York Times uh, to. I already had the L.A. Times. I was I was looking at. But I even have my own little counties. The Orange County Register, of all things, is available now. There's a there's a much expanded collection of newspapers, and I have to say, for any of our listeners who are who know the Financial Times, um, I've been now comparing them side by side during this last week of financial roller coaster. Oh, I bet that's an interesting read. And because it's financial- British, it's out of it's out of England, um, isn't it? I don't know. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I've sort of sensed yeah, some of that yeah. in, in like the way they use the pronouns and yeah, things. A little bit um, proper. But what I like about it is the it feels like the writers really understand what mm. they're writing about. Mm. Whereas the Wall St- even the Wall Street Journal has a little bit of feeling like, well, we're sort of rehashing what the AP, what, what came over the AP Newswire, and we don't really understand it. And and what I find is, as a consequence, I understand it better when I read it from the Financial Times than I do the Wall Street Journal. So, uh, which I w- was assuming was the you know the gospel essentially. Um, 
I, I, I do. I'm going to defend the uh, journal because I have some friends who, who work there. I think that they do actually know they're, they're They have some of the best reporters in the country. Uh, it's a very good newspaper. I don't read the opinion page because I'm my politics differ, but it may be that you're right that maybe they aren't um, they aren't covering. I wonder, you know, because they're they're in the back pocket, aren't they, of Wall Street? So I wonder if their coverage is perhaps a little less objective than something like the Financial Times. It might be that. Also, I've I'm also seeing that the articles, the the, the stories in the Financial Times are shorter. You know, the Kindle gives you the word count at the top of each each mm-hmm, story, mm-hmm. and 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 for example, this morning I read everything that that I needed to uh, during my morning you know Starbucks coffee sojourn um, <laughs> on the in the Financial Times, and then I quickly scanned the front pages of the Wall Street Journal, the the New York Times, and the L.A. Times, and there were some interesting local stories. You know, our, we finally got our budget signed by the governor yesterday which is a good thing in for the california budget um and but nothing really else that i wished i had you know right um read elsewhere so right. uh, the fact that the financial times has been covered in the kindle or is now available in the kindle i think is just really good news and i wanted to bring to the attention of our listeners who you know the four of them who might care <laughs> hey i lent my kindle to megan she wanted to do a review and after two weeks i was i was on my knees saying can you bring my kindle back <laughs> I miss it. <laughs> yeah. I, I now do not, uh, you know, in fact, I bought a paperback book and uh, and started to read it. And then I said, wait a minute, I bet this is available on uh, Amazon's Kindle. And I did. And I ordered it and I put the book aside. It's I've just the easier same to read it on the Kindle. I know. It's so nice to, to, well, and so universal, too, to carry it around. And frankly, I mean, books are are great to read. I've read many on it. But for me, you really get the leverage of the modem and yeah. the the uh, you know the it, the articles are just there when you're subscribing to newspapers and they're just there in the morning. It's right. just so right. nice. And in fact, um, I was mentioning to somebody. Oh, it was somebody at Starbucks about the Financial Times, and he was complaining that it didn't arrive physically until noon you for him. What at three a.m. You get it? Uh, on the yeah, yeah, just in the Kindle in the morning. It's certainly there <laughs> by four forty a.m. when I'm when it. I'm up and rolling. So I love it. And in other interesting security-related news, Sarah Palin's Yahoo email account. Oh, I was wondering if you would talk about. Hey, before we get to that, let me let me take a little break, and because uh, I'm I'm very curious what your take is on this, because it strikes me that Yahoo uh, didn't do a very good job of protecting her. Great security topic. Yeah, well, let's talk about that in a second. But before we do, I want to talk about the good folks at GoToMeeting. We've talked about Citrix before. You know that I'm a big fan of the Citrix folks. I've been uh, talking about GoToMeeting and GoToMyPC for three or four, you know, four years now um, because it is the best way to meet online. So the GoToMyPC technology, which gives you remote access, is the underlying technology for GoToMeeting. So you know it's it's fast. It works, uh, you know, anywhere. Because it's browser-based and they use a central server, you don't have any of the of the firewall issues. It's all outbound traffic, so you don't have to worry about configuration. It couldn't be easier, and that's important, especially if you're using this uh, to have meetings with people, uh, you know, who are less sophisticated than you are. If you're listening to security now, I know you can figure out how to do go to meeting, but maybe your clients or your colleagues aren't. It's so easy. You you set up go to meeting on your machine. Uh, you can use Outlook to send them an invitation. They just click the link. You can even call them while you're on the phone. They, by the way, it has VoIP built in. While you're on the phone with them, you could say, hey, go to go to meeting.com. Here's the meeting ID. 
They go there. They don't have to do anything, configure firewall or anything. They're securely connected to the GoToMeeting servers. And from there, they get your desktop. So, and I mean, real time. So they, I just was rehearsing a speech last week, the speech I gave in Austin. In real time, we were going through the PowerPoint slides. This was a speech where we each had 60 seconds to talk about a subject and the next one, the next one. It was fast paced. It worked great. Go to meeting. I want you to try it free for the next 30 days. Absolutely free. A month of unlimited meetings. By the way, unlike the competition, go to meeting is one flat rate for as many meetings as you want, as long as you want. You just, you know, use it all the time. They want you to have it free for a month because they know as you use this, you'll get more and more ideas about what you can do with it. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now and sign up right now. Gotomeeting.com slash security now for a month free of GoToMeeting. And the folks who really know remote access better than anybody in the world, gotomeeting.com slash security now, by the way, 128-bit encrypted, of course. I have to say that on security now because our audience understands <laughs> these things. <laughs> and we thank them so much for their support. All right, Sarah Palin, I'm very interested. Her Yahoo, she had, what, gov at... Or Alaska Gov at Yahoo.com. I can't remember. Yeah, gov.palin and gov.sarah. Okay. Both two accounts, both at, at Yahoo.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, it was in the news last week um, uh, that her account was somehow broken into. Um, and it turns out what this person did, and we're thinking, unfortunately, that it's the son of a representative. It's pretty much. Oh, you're kidding. The, I oh, the FBI. Yeah, the FBI tracked him down. He used a proxy in order to get some some sort of IP coverage, apparently. But he didn't but use the, a Tor. He used a, a one-step proxy. Yes, he did. And it turns out that, that the IP that he bounced through go, is handled by the ISP that covers the school that he attends. Oh, he's a kid. Yeah, he is. Um, and, um, you know, and I, uh, anyway, it just shows uh, you how easy it was because so, it was social, it was basically social engineering, wasn't it? Well, yes, it was. And, and the reason this is a really great topic for us, and we're not going to spend the whole time talking about, it, of course, but, but it, it brings to light an interesting problem. Essentially he, he went to Yahoo and, um, and figured out what the, the account name was that gov. Sarah or gov.palin, right. um, or maybe he knew from somewhere, I'm not sure how that was determined, but, but there, of course, was a password that he needed. So he told Yahoo that he um, had forgotten the password, and so went through Yahoo's password recovery steps, which involves answering a bunch of so-called secret questions. The problem is these were not very hard questions right. For someone to 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 know the answers to if, one if you've was been following the story, you know a lot of them. Well, and in fact, you don't even need to follow a story. I mean, if you 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 could arrive late to the party and just Google her or Wikipedia her right. or you know right. you know do do basically any publicly available source of of information. So I think one of the questions was where did you meet your husband, and so that was something that she had chosen probably from a list of standard questions, and this this kid guessed from whatever information he had that she met him in high school and he knew where she came from. So he knew what, what town that was. Right. He put that in. One was, what is your zip code? And one is your date of birth? Both which were available publicly because she's now a celebrity. Right, right. And, and it said, yeah, okay, fine. What would you like to set your password to? <laughs> and he set it to popcorn. 
Now, so, the same kind of thing happened to Paris Hilton with her T-Mobile sidekick. And it's because if you're a public figure, and, and the secret security question was, what's the name of your dog, which she talks about all the time. So if you're a public figure, this information is known. You can't use the obvious answers to your security questions. Right. I mean, do you think it's Yahoo's fault? Um, they Should they have a better it, system? It's everybody's fault. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, you would argue, I mean, they're, they're, I, I have no... No position one way or the other about about uh, Sarah using Yahoo. Um, that's questionable, though, wh- whether official business should be conducted in a public, non-secure forum like that. There, you know, there have been partisan people who have been been criticizing her, assuming that she was doing this in order to avoid whatever records maintenance uh, is normally, you know. Um, Someone in the government is normally subjected to for the sake of maintaining public records for posterity. I don't know about any of that, and I have no opinion one way or the other. Um, but you know what, what's of interest to our listeners, I think, is this idea that the password recovery mm-hmm. questions could could essentially be so insecure. So is Yahoo responsible? I don't know. But certainly. We've seen situations um, where you do password recovery, choosing from a list of questions. There are other ones the where you're able. That. I mean, right. There are others where you're able to provide your own question, and I think that's probably yes. more useful. You yeah. you can a- you can ask yourself a question that only you would know, right. as opposed to here's a bunch of suggested questions, none of which tend to be very difficult to answer. Well, you don't have Certain- to use the right answer either. You know, it asks uh, me frequently. Cool. What was my first pet? I don't use, first of all, I've never told anybody the name of my first pet. But in case I do, I'm a public figure. I talk a lot. In case I do, I don't use that as the name. I use some other name. Right. So, but then you have to remember it. It gets complicated. So. Security always comes at a price. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to mention was actually from the the um, the SANS newsletter. It's something I picked up on last week, but. I just sort of moved it over for a conversation this week. I thought it was very interesting. Um, They reported three different instances of, and this is just, you know, in the last couple of weeks, of of employees of one sort or another being responsible for breaches, serious breaches of their own corporate, their own company's security. Mm. And I wanted to share these with our listeners because this is something we have not yet in all this time spoken about. Mm-hmm. The, the first one was uh, titled Former Intel Employee Charged with Theft of Trade Secrets. And it, it reads from the SANS newsletter, Former Intel Corp Employee, looks like Biswamohan Pani, <laughs> Good luck. has been charged with theft of trade secrets for allegedly stealing proprietary company data, including information about the development of new chips. Wow. This is, you know, he's an Intel guy. Right. It says, Pani allegedly accessed an encrypted system at Intel and downloaded 13 top-secret documents. He had resigned from Intel in May and was taking accrued vacation time through June 11th. The intrusions occurred between June 8th and 10th. So in the last three days of his, you know, t- nominally his employment prior to June 11th, when when it was finalized, Pani or Pani 
had already begun to work for Intel competitor AMD. Oh. The issue was discovered when an employee looked into Pani's access and download history on the system oh in boy. question. Oh, boy, oh, boy. So there was one. Then, countrywide, notifying customers of data breach, personally identifiable information of as many as 2 million countrywide customers may have been sold by data thieves, according to the mortgage company. While there have been no reports of the information being used to commit identity fraud, Countrywide is offering two years of credit monitoring to affected customers. Oh, thanks a lot. I guess that's better than nothing after the information's escaped. That, and, of course, the customers were notified. The data were allegedly stolen by a former Countrywide employee hmm. who downloaded approximately 20,000 customer records every week for two years. Well, this is like embezzling almost. This is serious. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is long term. Yeah. 20,000 customer records every week for two years. Each batch of 20,000 customer records was allegedly sold for $500 US. See, now I'm I'm a former countrywide customer. So they would have my stuff, right? That's well, two, two million countrywide customers were affected by this wow. over the course of two years. And so this person was getting 2.5 cents <laughs> for every record that they stole. And then it, then it says, it appears that the data were sold to other mortgage brokers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So well, if you've been getting some unsolicited. I get a lot of unsolicited. <laughs> I, get it, I get that all the time. I get unsolicited. <laughs> But I Maybe thought that that was just because a loan is public record or something. Didn't go off to Russia in this case, Leo. It, it just went to Countrywide's competitors. You know, he's only this getting person- 2.5 cents. It's what, like 500 bucks per download? I guess that adds up. But still. 500 per batch. Per yeah. batch, yeah. I guess that Finally, uh, the last story is insurance office employee allegedly used customer data to open accounts. Attorneys general in 45 U.S. states have been notified that a State Farm insurance employee in Surprise, Arizona, loved that it happened <laughs> to be in Surprise, Arizona. Surprise. You, you surprised. Uh, used customer information to obtain credit cards. The compromised data included addresses, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, and in some wow. cases, bank account numbers. Wow. A company spokesman did not specify the number of people affected by the breach. Police are investigating. All affected customers have been contacted and offered one year of free credit monitoring. Surprise! Uh, Surprise! <laughs> so, so th- this really speaks to an issue that, as I said, we've we've never directly addressed, uh, and we certainly will at some point. And that is that you know we've talked about the the notion of I mean all the security that we've really talked about has been how to protect. From external intrusion, right? Uh, um, you know, you know, people on VPNs, external passwords. The idea of you know, given that that everybody inside is doing the right thing, how do you protect your goodies from anybody on any bad people on the outside getting in? And you know, these three stories I thought so perfectly demonstrate that there's a big problem, and in fact. It has been argued this is the bigger problem than than, than dealing with with bad guys on the outside who don't know your secrets, and that is 
dealing, you know, protecting your secrets from your own employees who have access. I and think that's almost a given that uh, most jobs are inside jobs, right? And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that we've been saying, I've been saying that for about hacking for a long time. You know, they're always looking to the outside guy and pay a little more attention to the guy inside because that's who really has all the information. Things like I, letting this guy, you know, quit, go on a crude vacation time and not canceling his account to the secret servers. That's just boneheaded. And he already had a job at AMD. So, I mean, and we're, of course, completely speculating here, right. but he might have realized, wait a minute, you know, I've got my accrued vacation time. Yeah. Technically, I still have access because I'm really still an employee. And so who knows what pressure he was subjected to either by AMD or his own ethics or lack of. I mean, it's impossible well, to guess this. And we should, prob- we should probably mention that he's almost certainly broken the law and broken his employment contracts. And there will be, you know, some price to pay for this. I mean, it's not a he's not going to walk away from this. No, no, no. I mean, this is 13 tox, top secret documents to which to which he had yeah. he had access while an, an, an Intel think, employee. I think so. that's a felony. I may be it's, wrong, but I think that's a it's, felony. It's wire, way bad. Wire fraud. Yeah. Do you. Uh, OK, so our topic of the day is uh, DNS and in particular, how it, difficult it is to do DNS security. Before you do that, do you want to do you do you have any spin right letters? Anything else you want to talk about? I did have one one really nice, fun, happy story, and th- th- from th- a Navy th- SEAL or a- uh, no? This <laughs> is a uh, Marty uh, Sasaki. He wrote. He's in Arlington. Uh, looks like Arlington, Massachusetts, oh. and he he said he just said the ha- the subject was happy with spin right. He says I've been looking at spin right since I first heard about it on Tech TV. Leo. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh my goodness! But he said, I couldn't justify spending the money on it until today. My system died. Can't tell whether it's a motherboard or a CPU problem. And the system is old enough that getting replacement parts is almost impossible. So instead, I got a new motherboard, CPU, and RAM, as well as a new SATA disk drive, a serial ATA disk. Mm-hmm. So he said, time to copy over the PATA, the, P, the PATA, the parallel ATA disks. I kept having problems doing the copy, trying both partition magic and gparted. It would always get a ways into the copy, then fail. So I figured I had a hard drive problem. I downloaded Spinrite and fired it up. It found a few errors, but it detected that one of the drives was running hot, really hot. Spinrite would stop, display the temperature warning. I would let it cool down a bit and then resume. I pulled the drive out of the case. Finally, he says, I I pulled the drive out of the case, mounted it so that I could blow a fan across it Mm. so I could get the data off of the drive. I probably would have figured it out eventually, but I saved myself hours, maybe days, of playing around by getting Spinrite. I've got a couple of flaky disks around that I'll check out next. Perhaps they're still usable. Thanks. I've had that happen, too, where the... uh do you, what do you set the temperature for default for a spin right to complain about the drive? Boy, I don't remember now. I did when I set the when I set the spec for it. I I did a survey of all the manufacturers' specs mm-hmm. and used the top end that is the high end operating temperature that they were saying. Oh. You know, do not use a drive if it's hotter than this. So I'm I'm not I'm not overreacting. It's to not drive. a conservative number by any means. No, no, no. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's hot, and and then the idea being that 
that I wanted to alert people, and this happens often, where they've got, a, for example, a case that was working fine, right. then they said, oh, I need more terabytes right. of data. Right. So they put higher performance, higher spinning, faster seeking, you know, more power consu- consuming drives in where they used to have a case that no longer has, as, as a consequence of that, adequate ventilation. Right. So, you know, they end up w- with drives and, and sadly, nothing else in the system. I mean, there are some add-ons you can get. Sometimes it will give you, you know, a, a something in the tray running that will monitor your drive temperatures. You know, Spinrite does. And the other thing is that oftentimes drives are run hotter when they're being used. Spinrite uses the drive constantly. One of the things that does cause power consumption and thus heat dissipation is seeking. And so if the drive is is cool when it's just sitting there doing nothing, and especially in the beginning when, when you power it up and the BIOS checks the drive's temperature, it says, oh, you know, drive's cold. Say, yeah, how long is it going to stay cold is the question. Right. So, so Spinrite does constant monitoring of the drive temperature in addition to all the other smart data, the SMART, the, the self-monitoring analysis and, re- and reporting technology stuff, while it's running and alerts people um, if the drive is getting too hot when they're running spin right. And it's generally something you need to take, you need to pay attention to, um, as this guy did. He finally put, you know, r- arranged to run a fan over the drive to keep it cool enough in order to get spin right to fix the drive so then he could do his data transfer. Hmm. You know, it's funny. I could have written that letter. We had a uh, computer that's been flaky for two years. Um, and Colleen, I said, you know, we should really spin right this drive. Um, and Colleen did, and it was and it was overheating, ah. and uh, and it's because it's in a shuttle case, and I think the shuttle uh, case is a little tight. Yes, shuttles and, actually have a big problem with an ad- adequate ventilation for the hard drive because it's 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 underneath it's tiny the, the the floppy, and there is no real forced ventilation, yes. you know, across the drive. You're right. So uh, <laughs> she had it open. Uh, it was actually kind of funny. She had it open uh, and a fan, like a table fan, blow, blowing at the drive so yeah. that she could finish the spin right. But but now yep. we know we need to leave the case open and maybe have a fan blown across the thing. And uh, we've actually retired that shuttle. It ne- it was always flaky, and now I know why it was too hot. Yeah. So that that's is a, that's a useful uh, little little inform- informative dialogue. Hey, before we get to DNS security, I want to mention Audible.com. Our good friends at Audible.com support this show. With their advertising, and they do because they know we like to read. Now, Steve, I'm still working on. I've never been able to get him to, to get into audiobooks. He loves his Kindle. But let me tell you, there are great books you can listen to. I'm listening to a book by Neil Gaiman. I love Neil Gaiman. He, he's probably not your cup of tea, Steve, because it's, it's, he wrote the Sandman series, but it's sci-fi more verging on the fantasy realm. I'm reading Neverwhere right now, which was a recommendation of actually one of our listeners, and I am... Loving it. I love Neil Gaiman's books. They uh, Neverwhere is about a secret city under the city of London, and one of its des- denizens escapes into London. And a, there's a it's comedic. There's a hapless her- hero, and he he just kind of hopeless, but he saves her, and, and and it's just a wonderful story. But the the point of this is you can get this or any other book. Fit. I don't. You know, I've been saying fifty thousand for a few months. It's probably more now because they're going up thousands of books every single month. They're recording more. They're making deals with more publishers. It is now a virtual bookstore. You go online to audible.com and you can see so many great books. But if you go to audiblepodcast.com, uh, 
slash security now. You can get Neverwhere for free. Just sign up today. You'll get a credit toward a book. There are so many great books. If you like science, if you like uh, mysteries, thrillers, of course, sci-fi, business, fiction and nonfiction, history too. I read a lot of biographies. It's all there. And there's something about listening to a book that just brings it alive. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Get your free book right now from Audible. I think you're going to love it. All right, let's get back to the matter at hand, DNS security. We all became aware of DNS security uh, when this big bug uh, that Dan Kaminsky found showed up. He talked about it at Black Hat. People were stunned to find out that their, you know, internet service provider wasn't providing secure DNS. Um, It seems like we fixed the problem. Is it fixed? Well, no. (laughs) Um, Great. It, it's we've hugely mitigated the problem of DNS spoofing, but we haven't fixed it in the sense, for example, that we use SSL right now for for really creating uneavesdroppable and and um, authoritative connections to remote servers. As we know, SSL uses. Um, a, a a certificate based system to to both to create an encrypted connection between two endpoints and to allow us to authenticate that we are connecting to a known a known remote server so that for example PayPal gets a certificate which has been signed by someone whom we trust in this you know often Verisign or Entrust or um, any of these certificate authorities, they they go to hopefully significant lengths to verify that this is really PayPal that they're giving the certificate right, to. Right. And PayPal has the certificate on their server, which our browsers connect to, and verify that the that the certificate matches the domain name. Thus, we we get we get authentication of the of the endpoint that we're connecting to, as well as thanks to the SSL protocol, we get we get encryption, which which protects it from being spoofed. Now, the DNS system, the domain name system that we've, we've talked about now several times, is a is a really flexible distributed database. Um, it can contain much more than just DNS, and this is one of the one of the really interesting ideas about what how DNS could grow in the future if only it were more secure. Right now, it's, you know, you could argue, well, it's secure enough to 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 look up IP addresses, especially where we add then an, an optional layer of SSL security to verify the identity of the remote endpoint to to reduce the spoofing problem. But we know that there are there are Still, things that occur, like like phishing attacks, for example, where where users are misled to go to the wrong site. That's not a failure of DNS, although the the problems that Dan found, the idea that DNS could be spoofed, does make these problems more severe. What what DNSSEC, as it's called, DNSSEC, which is the the acronym for DNS security, what it offers is for the, for the first time ever is cryptographically signed and authenticated 
DNS records, meaning that when when a resolver, a DNS resolver, is trying to get the IP for a domain, it could use a system very much like the the system we have in place for for security certificates. It could use a system using public key technology, the so so called PKI, the public key infrastructure, to 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 provably authenticate the the contents of the DNS data that it receives so that so that it's able to to absolutely state that that this data is the same as was being offered by the authoritative name server remember that the problem that Kaminsky exposed was that it was possible to do so-called cache poisoning, meaning that the 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 way DNS operates, that it gets its scalability because you're not always having to ask the authoritative server. You're able to locally cache the information which you you once obtain from the authoritative server. So you're not having to to bother that authoritative server all the time. That's really where DNS is scalable. That is the idea that you're able to cache this data. So what you want to verify is if if you get the data from a cache, is that the same as the authoritative name server has? And then you also have the problem that DNS uses no secure connections. It doesn't even use it do, doesn't even use TCP connections. It uses UDP packets, which because it's just a, a query in one packet and a response coming back, they are infinitely spoofable. So even if you ask the authoritative name server that is not a cache, but the actual source of the DNS information for a given domain or, or zone, as it's called in DNS parlance, even if you ask that server, you'd have no way of knowing that you got the response actually from the server because it's just a, a UDP transaction, a packet for a query and a packet for a response. So, so even there, you would like to have the data that you received digitally signed so that you, you, can, you can absolutely verify that, that, that this is information you can trust. Well, it turns out that that essentially the same sort of hierarchical structure that DNS uses for its domain names, where, for example, you have, you know, www.paypal.com, where you, and, and, and actually there's sort of a, even after the com, there is a root above the com where you have a hierarchy. You've got PayPal's name server that, that knows about PayPal, and the PayPal domains, then you've got the, a, a level above that is the com servers that know about the, the com domains, that is, all, all of the domains that are children of com, and then above them are the root servers that know about all of the, of the, the top-level domains, like com, org, edu, gov, and so forth, mill, you know, all of the... All, all the domains un- underneath the root. So the, the, the system that was developed um, has evolved over 
boy, I think we're now up to about 15 years. It, it's, 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 it's taken some time. And the early, the early RFCs, the, the early documents that define the first architecture were found to be defective because they did not scale well. One of the, one of the early concepts was that when a, when a zone when a, a a zone meaning the, the 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 records in a domain changed they needed to be re-signed the concept was that the parent would sign the children's records so for example if, if i'm at grc and if i changed some some data in my um grc domain i would have to have them re-signed by the parent and so the idea was that I would, in the original architecture, which has now been obsoleted, I would have to send those up to the, the for example, the comm servers to sign, and then they would, uh, and then the comm servers w- w- would send signed records back. Um, and this, the, the nature of the the cryptographic signature was such that that then. I could provide those records to third parties, anybody who wanted the GRC records, and they would see that they had been signed by the comm servers, and they would be able to get the public key of the comm server, and in order to verify that the comm server had signed those using its private key. Well, there were a number of problems with that. One is that that would require that the private key be available online, which was a huge concern because if it was available online, meaning it was sort of like a dynamically available, um, then there's a, a much greater chance that it could leak out, which would be catastrophic. But the biggest problem was that th- this would put a huge burden on on all of the parent servers, the, 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 the parents, any parents that had many children, since all of the children would constantly be having would needing to be have their records signed that was a huge problem so uh, a different approach was created where essentially using some some hashing technology where instead of needing all of the individual records to be signed it would it would be possible for um a um a, a signature to be signed so that the the this the the domain wanting itself authenticated would create a signature and it would just send the signature up to the parent that would sign the signature and send it back. So, so there's been some evolution of this over time, but, but fundamentally what this would mean if we could get DNS sec working correctly, that is get it broadly deployed and supported. It would mean that we would have a, for the first time ever, a, a, really, really secure, cryptographically securable distributed database for the Internet, which we've never had before. DNS has been okay, but with all kinds of problems and not something you could trust. It's, it's never been trustable. Well, when, when trustability arrives, then we get a lot of things we've needed. For example, DNS, because of its flexibility, could be used for distributing um, public keys. There's there's never been a good means for distributing public keys. And that's, for example, been one of the things that has prevented email um, security from, from working well. 
if I wanted to, if I wanted to, to um, use secure email on a, on a broad basis, I have to have some way of allowing anyone who wants to either decrypt and or authenticate the email as having come from me. I need some way of of allowing them to have access to my public key. Well, it, we we could use DNS to distribute public keys, but can't until it's absolutely securable, until we absolutely know that this is my public key and that that cannot be spoofed. Otherwise, the damage would be too great. So we have a problem, though, in in using, in, in deploying DNSSEC. Basically, the, the technology has largely been resolved. We have a system now which looks like it'll scale. The problem is that in the scenario I just painted, we are needing parents to sign the 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 children's hash. That is, we're, we're need, we the children produce a, a signature of their current domain and get the parent to sign it. Well, that means that the parent is using its private key in order to sign data, and that 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 the parent's public key is made available. Well, that's that's the way public key infrastructure technology works. The problem is the politics of this because a, in order for GRC to be authenticated, there has to be a chain of trust all the way up to a trusted root, what's called a trust anchor, some ultimate authority from which all authority emanates because that root that is literally the root servers would have to sign all of the top level domain, all of the com and net and org and mill and gov and the other countries top level domains, you know, like IT and SE and RU and you know and I know all of the other all of the country code domains similarly would have to be signed. So the question is, who gets that? What what authority runs that top level um, root server key? And unfortunately, that hasn't been an issue until now. But the U.S.'s Defense Department and uh, Department of Homeland Homeland Security have said they want to be in charge of these keys, and unfortunately. Um, the, uh, I don't think uh, Russia exactly. will like that. There's a problem. Yes, yeah. there's a problem with the rest of the world swallowing you know, the U.S.'s unilateral management and ownership of the keys. This has been going on in other areas as well with ICANN, for instance. Uh, for a while, I remember last year, there was a move in the U.N. to take uh, responsibility for the domains out of the hands of the, essentially out of the hands of the U.S. Commerce Department. I mean, now it's even worse if they want DHS to do it. Um, but there, there, there's some resentment among, you know, countries like Afghanistan. They're saying, why should the U.S. be responsible for this? Uh, of course, we're responsible because we invented it. But now it's a global system. Right. And so, well, exactly. So, so there's a bit of a, check, a chicken and egg issue here. It's like, well, you know, until it became really valuable, right. no one really cared. Yeah, we did now, it. Now, it's, now you want it from us. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, to, to give you some sense for... For the complexity at, I mean, the way things are even now, 
um, that is how these these the whole root zone system um, operates. Um, I, I I can read a little a short paragraph that talks about the issue of securing the root, and it says to clearly understand how this proposal will impact modifying and publishing the the so-called root zone file. That so there there's a there's a single file ultimately a single file called the root zone file, and that contains the addresses of all the top level domain name servers that is all the com servers all the org servers all of the the edu servers gov servers you know all of those and all of the other country code servers are in this top level zone file and understand that remember that what this is is this is the ip addresses of the name servers of all of those you know top level domains and that's in a, that, that's in a single file called the root zone file, or RZF. So, um, cont- continuing, it says so to clearly understand how this proposal will impact modifying and publishing the root zone file, it is best to briefly outline the current process and actors involved. Currently, change requests from registries are sent to ICANN, specifically the IANA, for processing. Once it is determined that the changes meet IANA's narrow technical requirements and they are approved by the ICANN board, the request is forwarded to the U.S. Department of Commerce for review and approval. If the, if the Commerce Department approves, the root zone maintainer, the, the RZM, currently VeriSign, edits and generates the revised RZF the root zone file. The root zone file is then loaded by the root zone distributor, the RZD, also VeriSign at this time, to the distribution master name server. Once there, it can be retrieved by the other root server operators located around the world. Sounds like something out of Tron. It, it's, well, okay, this is the simple way that it is now. And so the problem is that implementing DNS yeah. sec, yeah. DNS security, requires modifications to everything. I haven't even talked about the 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 details of the of the technology of this, but there are real problems. For example, I've sort of talked glibly about digital signatures and keys. There are there are key signing keys and zone signing keys and there's a, a and a, another record called a delegation signing record. I mean, it gets very complicated, and also, unfortunately, it gets bloated. For example, uh, in, in an example I saw, a normal traditional DNS record was 75 lines long, and that's a relatively that's a, that's a reasonable zone file. 75 line long lines long, and and about 23 or 2.3k in size the same zone implemented with dnssec was expanded from 7 lines to 665 lines Ooh. and from 2.3k to 27k but that's still small i mean we uh, ah except leo that no longer fits in a udp packet oh that's not good and that's the problem is the original DNS spec specifies that that 
UDP DNS messages can be up to 512 bytes of payload, which ends up being uh. 576 bytes for the total packet. So 512 bytes. Now, 512 bytes doesn't sound like a lot, but it turns out it's the because of the way DNS messages are compressed. There, there, there. There's a compression technology which is pretty clever that just uses simple pointers to to end up compressing a very complex set of queries and replies into a couple hundred bytes. So it ends up, you know, it ends up being that, that UDP is entirely practical, single packets for, for shooting this stuff back and forth. Well, suddenly, when you add DNSSEC, that is no longer the case. But what's wrong with sending multiple packets? Most of our data is multiple packets. Does that screw something else up? Well, okay, there's no provision, first of all, for multiple UDP packets. There, remember that it, it takes TCP to create the notion of a byte flow, right. which can then flow across multiple packets. Right. So, so DNSSEC requires other enhancements to DNS, which, which are identified and have been put in place, and that is extensions that allow DNS to use UDP over much larger packets. So, so that's been done. The problem is, you'll remember that, that we ta- when we talked about this before, the way the existing DNS system is functioning, it is more than half saturated, meaning that uh, all the servers that are currently in use, they have, they have less than double capacity available. And DNSSEC hugely is more well, it's than... a hundred times bigger. It, it's yes, hugely more yeah, yeah. than than what we have now. So so this, I mean, it really does represent a a massive burden to the infrastructure. Does this mean it's Yet, not going to happen? Uh, it it I mean, it's been trying to get off the ground now for years, and and it's it's having. I mean, this is this gives you a sense. As, as I said, I hadn't even talked about the technical side of right, this, which right. is really a problem. I mean, this really represents problems. Also, we've got suddenly public key operations going on, which we know are expensive. All of this signing and verifying, these are public key transactions, which are computationally burdensome. One of the problems with DNSSEC is that now it becomes much more feasible to launch a denial-of-service attack against DNSSEC DNS name servers used to be that you would flood them with data. Now you can lead them on a merry chase of trying to resolve DNS records and they'll collapse because of the computational burden of all the public key work that they have to do. So you got the geopolitical issue, you got the technical issue. On the other on the one side pushing and against the performance it. Performance issue and the bandwidth performance issue. Performance and bandwidth. On pushing against it. On the other hand, uh, you've got the whole world saying, but we need a secure DNS system. Yes, well, exactly. We need, imagine having a, a, an, a truly robust, secure, hierarchical database so that you could distribute not just IP addresses, but as I was saying before, e- even you know, secu- securely distribute public key certificates. Suddenly then, you know, like, uh, who knows how long they would last, but, but I could have a public certificate that 
that anyone through a simple naming mechanism and, you know, DNS names are a naming mechanism through a naming mechanism. It would be possible for anyone to acquire anyone else's public key and then be able to use that for, for any number of purposes. It would be really tremendous. So what do we do? Uh, lobby well, our, our members of Congress. I mean, what can, what can you do? <laughs> um, Who's they, in charge here? <laughs> they recognize that there is a chicken and egg problem that, you know, there, there would be a lot of demand for this if it existed, but there isn't demand for it now because it right. doesn't exist. Right. Um, there are, do, do, there who are, implements this? Does, does, uh, does my ISP implement this? Does do the backbone servers implement it? Does the government who who would be well, the decision that's maker? The, that's the other problem is that in order for this to function, every name server, every oh. server in the chain of command has to have an un, there has to be an unbroken um, as, as, as essentially unbroken zone signing from <laughs> from from the zone you want to verify all the way up to the root. And you so, know how well it worked when we moved to IPv6 and everybody just jumped on that bandwagon. Exactly. Clearly this isn't going to happen. Not for a exactly. while. Exactly. I mean, and, and now there is there is sort of a, a, a funky alternative approach, um, which, um, uh, and I'm, the acronym is escaping me right now. We're in acronym soup today. I think we talked about, did we talk about it when we talked about no, this? No, it's DLV. Um, uh Oh, it's it's uh, it's 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 a look aside approach. The L stands for look aside. The idea being that that ideally you'd like to have a single coherent hierarchy where at every level in the hierarchy you you have keys and you're able to verify, but by simply knowing by simply knowing the public key of the root. You can then verify the entire hierarchy yourself, okay. just like by knowing the the public key of of a of a certificate authority. You can then verify the entire chain of authority all the way down. However, it's recognized that you know this is this effort is stumbling because you know of of the issue of of the requirement to have one single central authority, and no one can agree geopolitically who that authority is. So there, there is a counterproposal that allows the this, this so-called look-aside technology where somebody like um, the ISC, they would maintain their own servers and th- th- they would main- – and so GRC would, would develop its own public key and private key pair and we would provide the – we would provide – um, securely provide the information to ISC um, th- that is our public key to ISC, and then and then GRC would use we would use d- d- DNS naming. For example, it would be it would be GRC dot DLV dot ISC dot com. And and so any domain could be subsidiary to ISC. I'm sorry, to ISC dot org could be subsidiary to dlv.isc.org and that would allow someone to to first of all on, then you would only need isc's public key in order to verify that their to verify their signature of 
GRC's public key in order to get GRC's public key to verify GRC. So it basically it's a non, you know, it's it's a mess. But it's, it's a, a look non, aside. <laughs> it's a look aside, uh, or look askance. Um, it's a non-hierarchical alternative right. to the hierarchical approach. Not as not as good, but it, I mean, still gives you provability. Would it be more and, robust? Because uh, the problem with the hierarchical approach, as we've talked about before, you knock out the top, everything collapses. Well, the, well, the the benefit of the hierarchical approach is that it scales. It's efficient. The problem, yeah, the, yeah. The problem here is that ISC's servers would come under tremendous burden no. because any they would have to field a query from everyone who wanted to verify oh. any domain. So it's even more vulnerable because that's the, again you have that choke point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it would be bandwidth vulnerable. They they would they would be signing. For example, in the GRC example, they would sign our public key once and then maintain it as a static record. So anyone would have to have their public key, and then would and then anyone wanting to verify that would have to be doing a a public key operation. But that would still be the case even in the hierarchical arrangement. You wouldn't need. Uh, would you need fewer check-ins with this system? I mean, does the key stay good? Or do you still have the same time to live issues where you have to update it regularly? Uh, as a matter of fact, we didn't talk about that. But you have there is you still have TTLs, but then you also have relatively short lifetimes on the keys. There are there are two there are two cla- there are two classes of keys. I mentioned key signing keys and zone signing keys. Um, it turns out that that some of them for security reasons have to have lifetimes as short as 30 days. So then you've got to be rolling keys over where you 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 have replacement keys that that overlap the valid times of the keys they're replacing. It, it I haven't got into the detailed technology of this because I mean it's really I mean even even what I described is rather mind-numbing, but the the technology of this is even more so. I mean the, the but They've worked out the details, and it exists, and it's it's clearly and cleanly described in in RFCs. Is there a, is there a likelihood that either of these systems will be uh, implemented in the near future? Well, I think we're there, just going to stumble along with what we got. There is one alternative approach that has been proposed, <laughs> oh which which yes, which is <laughs> another one. <laughs> which well, it involves not relying on a sole signer of the root because remember and we've seen this before it's possible to have multiple signers of a single object and then then you're not you're not you then you're able to decide oh, I like that whom you want to trust right okay you like it that's kind of like pgp exactly yeah so so here it says uh, again i'm reading from this paragraph because otherwise there's no way <laughs> to explain but th- it. this could solve a lot of things because you could have a russia could sign as well as the yes. u.s Yes. Um, you don't instead, have this single point of failure. Yes. Instead of a single RKO, that that was the root key operator. Right. We propose that multiple independent non-governmental RKOs mm-hmm. be responsible for generating KSKs, which are the key signing keys, and ZSKs, which are the zone, zone signing keys that I've just talked about. Just believe, you know, just, just for now, just... Take it as a fact that they exist. Yes. <laughs> and, and transmitting the public portions of these keys to the root zone maintainer for construction of something new, 
a root key set. The, the RKOs, that is the root key operators, would be also responsible for the distribution of the public portion of their key signing key, which is the trust anchor globally. So once constructed, the root key set would be distributed to the RKOs, the root key operators, for, for signature over all the key sets. The signed root key set is then returned to the RZM, which is the root zone maintainer, for inclusion in the RZF, the root zone file. Each root key operator will then sign a copy of the root zone file using the private portion of their respective zone uh, zone signing key and transmit it to back to the root zone maintainer who will merge the files. Certainly. All of, <laughs> of, all of the exchange of, oh, yeah, you knew that was coming. Of course. <laughs> all of the exchange of data between root key owners, uh, oh, I'm sorry, root key operators and the root zone maintainer would occur on secure out-of-bound channels. Um, anyway, the, the upshot of this is that we would end up with a, a master root zone file that had been essentially signed by as many participants, non-governmental participants as wanted. Yeah. And then you could use any of those participants' public keys to verify the integrity of the the the, the globally master root zone file. Even the Hong and Kong then, Post Office, if you and want. And then no longer be forced to trust, for right. example, just in, right. in any like this. single entity. This has worked very well for PGP. When you create a PGP key, uh, you in fact, people even have key signing parties. You ask people who know that this is you to sign the key. And to add trust to that key. It's a trust model. And I think it works very well. Um, and, of course, you decide as the user. Now, now end users aren't who to trust. End users are going to make that decision. Microsoft's going to make that decision or, or Safari or Firefox. But um, they, they would probably have in the same way they do now, right? A, a, a set of trusted uh, key signers, right? Yes. I think that that yeah. seems like a good system. That seems like it's implementable. It distributes the burden. It's global, not U.S.-centric. Um, is this is is this kind of a favored system? Is this seems like the one that could actually work? Yes, th- th- that's the direction that we're heading in. Because they, they, I mean, for now, for a couple of years, the 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 problem of who's going to be the the sole arbiter of the root, um, it's right. just been a non-starter. Right. I mean, right. just it's just we're, can't, we're it can't not, be the U.S. It just can't. Yes, it just yeah, and we're not wanting it to be anybody else. Right. So, right. so, you know, that kind of a multiple overlapping signatures is probably the way it's going to evolve. Um, right now, there are some countries that have their own top-level domains signed and are using DNSSEC. Hmm. The problem is that it's not, it's not global. That is, in order for, for me to trust or, or any name server to trust any any of their children domains, for example, underneath, I think Sweden is SE, and I think Sweden is does have DNSSEC running at their top level. So for any for any of the domains under for for a an external name server, you know, random company, you know, random ISP in the U.S. 
to trust any of the of of the domains underneath SE. Oh, they check with the uh, the domain server, the uh, key server at domain. It's SE. Exactly. Swedish, they uh, they okay. they they would need to have SE's public key. That is, right. they would have to know it, and they have to securably know it. That is, right. spoofing that becomes a big problem. That's what you have to absolutely prevent. So you need a secure way to get the public key of the SE server. What and the problem is, and any other servers that are not the root. So it's it makes much more sense if everything descends from the root. Then all all you need is one public key that could be globally known and some mechanism for updating that you know periodically because you don't want it you don't want to have to have it last forever. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> so ultimately, sounds like we've know, got something that can that could actually be workable for all parties. It, it could be workable. Don't forget though, we've got computational problems. Right. We've got DNS server deployment problems. We've got right. bandwidth problems. I mean, there's so this got, would sit on top of a of a DNS sex. Uh, solution that would have to resolve the UDP TCP issue that would have to resolve the, you know, the bandwidth issues, things like that. Bandwidth and, and computational burden of, right. of essentially moving. I mean, and it's, for me, it's phenomenal to look at how simple the system we have now is and, and what you have to do. It's amazing that it's worked for so long. Yeah. I mean, it does. You and I have it, talked about this vulnerability. We don't talk real loud about it, but the fact that these 13, Root servers, uh, if they could be DDoSed for a day, the whole net would go down. And they've been DDoSed for short periods of time, and and it's a problem. But you know that that has been they've they are actually not physically thirteen. They're there are thirteen IPs, but ah, they've got and much more hardware behind right, them. Right. And that infrastructure has been hugely strengthened over okay, the years, okay. so that it's much more difficult to actually to actually mess with them now. But but it, but it's a perfect point is that for example, I'm running my own independent resolver here. Um so I'm not depending upon any ISP's resolver and and my my local DNS um resolver knows those 13 IPs. Those are the 13 root server IPs and every so often, not often, it checks in with them to update the you know the record of the top level domains you know and in order to make sure you know in order to get you know that from them and so um um so the same sort of thing has to happen in dns and 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 as i was saying before it's remarkable to me how how bad it gets when you really want to apply security to this system i mean it's so simple relatively to have DNS work the way it does in this sort of, you know, trust everyone model and and give me an IP for a domain. When you when you really, really want it to be cryptographically secure, it's incredibly burdensome for that to, to for that to be to be added to the system. But boy, it with the chicken and egg, you know, once we do, we get something really valuable. Yeah. We get a, a a phenomenal ability to have a globally distributed secure database, and ultimately, I think it's clear that's where the internet's going to have to we be. Got, we got to do that. I mean, we yep. can't we, we can't not do this. Well, this has been been a very interesting uh, conversation. Of course, a difficult one to follow, but uh, as usual, <laughs> you do a great job explaining it. And uh, and uh, I'm watching the people in the chat room going, 
what's he say? What's going on? <laughs> what's, what's it all mean? But we figured it out, I think. Hey, Steve, I thank you so much for, um, for making that clear. And I understand, you know, somebody in the chat room did mention that, uh, that the, the U.S. government has said it's going to pl- deploy DNSSEC. I mean, that, that, is, that the White House says uh, we're going to do it. Well, .gov and .mil, I, I know .gov, ah. I think .mil, those two top-level domains will, but again... They can do that unilaterally because that's a, those are all both U.S. domains. Yes, yeah. but not the root. And so, so there again, anyone who was, anyone within that system would have their servers configured with the public key of the .gov domain and the .mil domain and would then be able to to be able to authenticate any records coming from within that structure, but not outside that structure. Oh, thank you, Steve Gibson. You're the man. If I ever need anything like that explained, I'm going to you. <laughs> or just tune in next week for another security. thrilling edition. Next week, we'll answer your questions. And again, let's underscore this. GRC.com slash feedback. Feedback. GRC.com slash feedback. Hey, while you're at GRC... Check out, of course, Spinrite, the best, the one, the only. I am now. I have now a policy that every hard drive that gets deployed at Twit gets Spinrited before it gets deployed, and that just gives me a nice feeling to know that we're gonna, you know, we're gonna map out bad sectors. We're gonna have a re- much more reliable drives. And since we're recording all the video now on on, on a drive every, a new drive every week, I think it's fairly important to do that. GRC.com, get your copy of Spinrite, the world's best disk maintenance and recovery utility. Also, while you're there, lots of free stuff. Shields up. Lots of free programs like Wismo. And let's not forget 16 kilobit versions of this very show. Show notes as well, so you can follow along. And transcripts too, thanks to Elaine. It's all there at grc.com. Steve Gibson, thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week, Leo. Security now.